0: Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespokecast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespokecast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter, at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy this podcast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to our newest episode of Bespoke Cast. I have Eddie Elfenbein with me. He runs Crossing Wall Street, uh, as well as a new ETF. Well, it's it's been around for about a year now, but uh, an, an ETF that uh, has some interesting approaches towards active management uh, in. Uh, space that's traditionally very passive, it's going to be really interesting to hear what he says about the, uh, the ETF business and about his approach to portfolio management. Uh, Eddie Elfenbein, welcome to BespokeCast, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We always like to start with a little bit of a background around who we're talking to for folks that uh, don't follow you on Twitter as uh, closely as, as someone like me does uh, or hasn't had a chance to talk to you as much over the years. So uh, you're a current Washington, D.C. resident, uh, that's correct? That is right. And you lived
1: in D.C. how long? Uh, let me see. Well, I, I'm, I'm from this area my entire life. I'm in my present location for 12 years now
0: awesome. I, I always tell people that live in DC, I commend them for their ability to do it. I, I interned in DC when I was in college. And DC is like this awesome town, like such a livable city and, and such a nice place in so many ways. But the politics side of things is just so pervasive. I, I really commend you for being able to live there and not go nuts from that side of things. Well, the,
1: that, that's the thing is, I, I mean, there's two cities. There's Washington, the capital. you know, the White House and all the you know cabinet the government then there's dc and i'm really from dc and that sort of gets overlooked so i'm a know, i i don't i don't work in the government i i i I never have uh so i'm just not a part of that world you know just the, the regular part of the city that's my home and i love it i think it's a great place to live
0: yeah, it totally is. And there's some really cool stuff. I mean, in addition to the fact that there are so many interesting things to do uh, culturally, um, there's some great sports, like that kind of stuff. Um, it's also just a really, like I said, livable. Like, that's really how I think about D.C. Like, there's great mass transit. There's tons of good stuff to eat. There's, you know, lots of cool stuff going on. So, so it's definitely a great town in its own right, aside from the, from the whole political and, and federal government angle. Um, so you said you lived in D.C. your whole life. Did you go to school in the D.C. area as well?
1: Uh, well, actually, uh, so so for college, I went, rather ironically, I went to Washington College, despite having the name, it's actually in Maryland. So that's where I, I went uh, undergrad. And then I went to the University of Connecticut to get my MBA. I was sort of thinking maybe I would like to go uh, to Wall Street. Uh, and so I figured, I think that UConn was uh, fairly close that I could, uh, you know, maybe maybe make an easy jump to Wall Street. Although I never actually did that, I think that's what my thinking was at the time. Got it.
0: Um, so you did an MBA at the University of Connecticut. That's right. Yeah, that's where I got my uh, my grad degree. And for undergrad, did you study finance, economics, business? Not at all.
1: Not at all. I was a history major, was not into, I, I liked, you know, the stock market. I always had an interest into it, but I didn't take a, a single business class when I was an undergrad. And I'm, I'm kind of a believer in that. Take what you want, I've always been, you know, have a passion and interest in history and studying that. And that's what I was into. And I think it's a good thing to kind of save that for grad school uh, and, and sort of the undergrad, I'm very much a believer. In the liberal arts education, makes the well-rounded person, and it teaches you how to think and how to teach yourself. So, uh, so that that was my path.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I think the other thing a liberal arts education will do for you, in addition to sort of the giving you a toolkit to expand your own mind, and and like that's probably the best aspect of a liberal arts education. But the thing I loved about doing a more generalist, like non-markets uh, oriented education in undergrad was the fact that it gives you a framework to sort of use as an initial filter. So you know it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be super doctrinaire in applying that framework but whether it's history whether it's um philosophy whether it's um another liberal arts discipline you sort of have a starting point where you say okay like uh, something happens like whatever it is that happens how am i going to think about that as a sort of a first principle and then i can sort of once i'm oriented around that sort of start dissecting you know more detail or start applying new facts or whatever and it gives you this framework that um Will create a different impression of what's going on than if you're only thinking about the world through um, the lens of accounting or you know business or you know economics, um, which is sort of the default setting for for much of the finance industry.
1: No, I, I I absolutely agree. One of the things you learn is like if you study something, I don't know, let's say the Civil War, or the Vietnam War, or something you study it and you really the the, the big thing you learn is. It was a lot more complicated than I realized. You looked at something, it was a lot more complicated. There was so much going on. And that really comes in handy when you go from a liberal arts background to looking at the market. And you see a lot of people in the market love to have their little slogans or little ideological things. Like, oh, it's this and oh, it's that. But when you really dissect it as at, at a uh, you know deeper level, you, you come back to that lesson. It's a lot more complicated than it appears.
0: Yeah. Any good comprehensive historical treatment of Anything will leave you coming away with it, sort of um, thinking about about how much more you need to learn about it. Even if it's something really comprehensive and really detailed, um, you'll come away sort of wanting to learn more detail um, and get more you know, information on something then, you know, oh, well, I now understand exactly everything that went into this this historical event or whatever. Um, you know, it, it, it's down a rabbit hole, I guess you could say. And I, I think it's totally the same thing with markets, whether it's a single com- company, um, from a macro perspective, an economy or a part of a, an economy. Like, you know, it, it, the, the more you dive into this stuff, the more you wanna l- learn the details that no one can ever know. There's always gonna be more to learn about things.
1: Absolutely, and I, and I know you know you, you're a big big uh, uh, big uh, presence on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter as well. And you see so often on Twitter and blogs and other places that people go with these easy sloganeering, and you'll see these, red Oh, well, the the, the Fed is uh, boosting the market, or something is you know uh, 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 you know th- th- this is happening because of Trump or the liberals or something, and people have these nice pat opinions the thing here's what i'll say is that investing is sort of the minefield for the meta-narratives it is something where you have to be very, very practical minded and lose these sort of, I think, uh, absurd, larger explanations and to come about this with a, with a strongly ideological view. I don't mean that necessarily political ideological, but that, that you know there, there are these you know, simple pat ideas that explain the market or, or just particular investing. And that is just not how it, how it works. And it takes a real training of the mind to to sort of grasp that fully, it took me a long a long time to learn, and you can really see that with novice investors, the the big gap in that. Yeah, definitely. I, so,
0: getting back to your career history, so you graduate from UConn with an MBA, you've got a history degree in undergrad. Uh, what was your first job uh, out of your MBA program? Did you go straight from from undergrad to MBA?
1: I did, and that that's sort of a, a mistake in retrospect. But at the time, I didn't have much of a choice because uh, there was a recession going on. So I I didn't want to do that, but I, I was forced to do that. Now, on the other hand, then years later, I see saw friends when they were older and they had jobs and they were working on their on their MBA. So I had that out of out of the way. Um, let me see, what was it? Now I I can say I had a a, a terrible experience in, in my twenties. I was just it was not. Uh, one, uh, I, di- I did not have uh, good jobs. I had a l- lot of sort of uh, uh, dead-end jobs in finance. I, well, I, I was even temping. I was working as a sales assistant. So I'm a, I'm a good example. I had a very difficult time in my 20s getting started. And then this was maybe in the, about the mid-90s. I started my own newsletter. This was a print newsletter. It didn't even have an internet version. And, and I focused on micro-cap stock. Uh, This got um, very, very little attention, but it was fun doing and very uh informative and i guess what you say it was a learning experience which is always one of those dubious so phrases. what what led but, you to
0: microcaps? because that's a pretty you know unless you're deep in the weeds that's that's not something a lot of people have a lot of knowledge around i mean you know some people certainly do but it, it's not a common thing to focus on so what led you to focus on micro cap stops and stocks and sort of start talking about them in that newsletter
1: uh, two, two things. One is, I figured it was the uh, nobody else talks about it. So I wanted to have my niche. I wanted to be the microcap guy. Also, you know, a lot of the uh, research, you know the long term research that you would see is that microcaps were the single best uh, performing uh, size sector of the market. and it goes it's, it's almost perfectly ranked order, that the largest have been the worst. Uh, the smallest have been the best all the way down to the little microcaps caps uh, being the best. I should say now 20 odd years on, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of, of a lot of that research. But that, uh, you know, you, you still see that and it's still uh, widely held today. So I figured uh, I would be I, I would get the niche, you know, and, and, and other people would not want to go into that field since it's so unusual. So that was my my marketing mindset. If you remember, uh, Jim Glassman used to write an investing column for the Washington Post in the '90s. So it was a very popular column. This was before he decided to do the, his Dow thirty six thousand, um, and he, he would feature me a couple times. And and I would have my my phone, and I would get uh, calls from uh, from all over the place to uh, to sell my newsletter.
0: So you were doing that as your full-time job then you weren't doing that as sort of a side gig or were you doing it in addition to working in finance elsewhere?
1: Kind of, kind of both. I think I started while I was doing, while I was a sales assistant and I went down to more uh, part-time work and then I did that full-time.
0: Got it. So, um, rode the equity wave of the, of the late 1990s with, with that basically. I mean, um, pretty hard to to go wrong in that environment, I would imagine
1: well i it, it was tough for me because I just didn't uh, the the business just didn't go well enough for me to to live on. Uh, I got a lot of it's odd that I sort of uh, got a lot of attention and people, you know, recognized me. So I, I got a position that I could not have applied for. I guess there's a life lesson. I couldn't say, "Oh, I'll apply to be a uh, the editor of a of a microcap newsletter." And you know, some people, uh, you know, read it and and I got you know uh, favorable coverage in some magazines and newspapers, which I never would have had doing what I'd been doing before. But I just didn't have uh, enough to support myself, that led me to uh, apply for a job, uh, where a company based in the DC area that used to be known as Phillips Publishing. It's uh, now has a di- very different uh, form these days. It's been broken up and divided and spliced off. But at the time, it was the largest newsletter publisher in the world. And they had a lot of prominent uh, newsletter uh, investment newsletter writers. Um, and if you have a successful investment newsletter, it's one of the best business models to have That's sort of an, if, if you can get over that hump. So I worked there for a number of years, actually, in retrospect, it was a, it was a really good environment and I, I really enjoyed working there. And that took you through until about when? Uh, about 2005.
0: And at that point, did you start up crossing wall street?
1: That's right. That's right. That's, what, that's when I started up uh, Crossing Wall Street. And I guess I just sort of always had the, the bug to, uh, to go out on my own. So I left uh, w- working full-time, and I uh, was a consultant. Another uh, lesson learned is that uh, working at the consulting gig, where you're sort of just working for yourself, was for me, uh, 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 there was a lot more money involved in that doing very similar things just within a corporate environment Uh, so that was something I don't don't think I I fully realized but also I guess I needed uh, some of the experience to do that as well so when I was consulting that's when I started up uh, crossing Wall Street that was July 1st I believe of 2005
0: and crossing Wall Street is entirely free right you don't offer any paid content that's correct it is
1: entirely free. So that's that's
0: relatively unique. I mean, it, it's not unprecedented you know, by any means, but um, that's relatively unique. Why did you try to go down that road as opposed to um, being paid for a newsletter or your analysis or what have you?
1: I think I just wanted to sort of get my name out there and get known so people would know who I am. And I was you know, do, at the time I was doing well with the consulting. So I, I probably just thought thought of it as more of a rounding error of what I, what I, what I do. So I'd rather, ha- at the time, I think I was just getting, cause I, <laughs> I was a nobody, nobody, nobody had ever heard of me. So I figured, uh, you know, right, right. You know, get some attention and see what happens from there. It, it was no, there was no, uh, orderly plan to any of this. I just, uh, I, I, I just liked to write as well. And, and, have a lot about stock so it's what I enjoy
0: yeah I, I totally enjoy writing too and um, it's a good thing because uh, you know I think we both have a similar level of output where it's like you know, between Twitter and between the writing we do for you know you for Crossing Wall Street and Wall Street, me for um, our research at Bespoke. I mean, y- you can write thousands of words a day and barely be scratching the surface of what's going on in the market when it's really busy and when there's a lot going on. So <laughs> you better like Absolutely. to write if you're going to yeah. do research. <laughs> um, so how does uh, Crossing Wall Street fit into your investment process? Is that is it is it a tool for you, you know, that writing process, as well as something you do to um, get your name out there and sort of provide content to people?
1: As far as a process, I I would say no. I mean, it's just sort of me, me thinking out loud, if that if that's a process as well. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about, like, things that I'm interested in and where I look for stocks and, and, and what I like, but I don't think the blog itself really uh, aids um my investment process i mean i mean i can say sometimes i get feedback and i get really interesting ideas from readers and uh that's one of the things you really learn about blogging is that the blogging world is a lot smarter than you so you talk about oh some some company that's not you know that hasn't been doing well and then you get an email from person say oh i worked for it for 20 years and let me explain what's really going on you know, as well. I didn't know that, so you so you can learn things. So in that way, uh, the blog uh, opens me up to uh, ways of thinking and ideas that I previously probably would not have had a chance to uh, to see.
0: Yeah, I, it, it's a great site too because there's a lot of stuff going on that that you know isn't necessarily directly focused on a company you may own or something like that. It, it, you know, you're not you're sort of just putting stuff out there you find interesting. So um, right now it's um, uh, Tuesday, uh, the 28th, we're recording this. The first thing on the blog is a discussion about the natural rate of interest, uh, you mm-hmm. know, which is fairly esoteric macroeconomic theory. Uh, you've got a more practical sort of, um, and I, I don't mean practical as in, as in better. I just mean more, you know, nuts and bolts kind of thing. Um, the next one down about the fed window closing, uh, about the flattening of the, uh, twos tens curve. Uh, mm-hmm. you've got, uh, Recap of consumer confidence, a recap of what's going on in the morning, um, what's happening with OPEC, uh, discussion of uh, Amazon's partnership with Cerner. So it's like a really nice sort of like, you know, just all kinds of different stuff flying at you. Um, and, you know, do, do, is that fun to sort of to sort of put all that stuff oh. out there?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I really do enjoy that. I, I, I like I like the movement and the energy of financial markets. Uh, you know, there's always a, an opening bell at nine 9.30 on the weekday. I just like the, uh, the I And also, like a lot of people in financial markets, I'm a very sort of data-driven person. So I always find that fascinating. I mean, even I think it's interesting. Uh, I've never heard this discussed in detail, but I th- always think it's interesting that, If you didn't know anything about finance and you didn't know anything about sports, just watching CNBC and ESPN almost have a similar look and feel with all the numbers going and the crawl and the scores and the bond market and everything. So I always really uh, sort of uh, enjoy the, uh, the energy and, and writing about you know whatever economic report is going on I, I and let me also say I'm a big fan of, uh, of bespoke because I think you guys do ju- such a, uh, a great job in uh, in dissecting and bringing numbers and analysis to the market
0: yeah it's it's been interesting recently actually I was just sort of thinking about that and I know I know you spend a, a fair bit of time as a personal interest and you know, with your history background, looking at uh, geopolitics, which may not necessarily focus too much on financial markets. But, you know, I I had a note last week where I just sort of ran down, like, all the geopolitical stuff going on right now. And it's an interesting time in the market because there's a lot of stuff happening around the world that isn't really numbers related, like, you know, uh, thinking about the future of the European Union or the Eurozone, thinking about what's happening in the U.S. government, thinking about Brexit, Mm -hmm. thinking about what's happening in the Middle East, you know, these are not issues that lend themselves well to numerical analysis, right? Not at um, all, no. so it's So have you sort of found that environment um, challenging in terms of, of how sort of how much wild stuff is flying around that you can't just sort of come up with a chart or a model and say, okay, this is sort of how the world works? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I guess it's the old lesson what i what I find interesting is that uh, it's a it's a highly volatile world w- and and combined with a uniquely uh, low volatility, extremely low, historically volatility market. And I guess the lesson is that you know the the headline, you know what's going on in the world does not necessarily affect stock and bond prices. So I guess totally. That, that, that's sort of the, the lesson and you know I you know Thanksgiving family say so is Trump gonna ruin the market and it's like well it just doesn't work that way is what is what it goes on people think the uh, the stock market is a scoreboard and all of these you know uh, things you know the North Koreans are players on the field and it really just doesn't work that way that's that's not how it is
0: yeah that that definitely has been a challenge I think for for um... The, the post-election period is trying to separate out the political news that matters for the market, which is very little. And then not only, you know, how, how impactful from minute to minute that political news will be, but also how long it'll last because the half-life of the impact of different headlines that have come out of Washington has been almost zero, even mm-hmm. though some of them have been fairly substantive. Like this, this, you know, tax bill is a really good example, right? Like, you know, if it, if, uh, either the House or Senate version that's currently being discussed passes. That's a pretty major tax reform. Mm -hmm. Um, But... It, it's not clear that it's having a huge impact on the market, right? So you, you could very easily fall down this rabbit hole of chasing these headlines that seem really momentous when, you know, if you take a step back, it's like this stuff hasn't really mattered for the market at all. Like if you try and chart out the big political headlines of the year against the S&P, it, it hasn't really had a big impact on anything.
1: That, that's, I, I, I agree. And what what's especially interesting about that is Corporate taxes is one of the rare times we can say this has a direct impact on ROE. It is absolutely elemental to ROE. If, if corporate taxes go down, that increases uh, the, the uh, profitability and the efficiency of corporations. More money is filtered uh, to, to shareholders. So often they say, you know, cut, cut marginal rates or something else happens. You know, it, it's very tangential to uh, To the markets in this case, it just if you're a company, the lower corporate rates that helps you out, that improves your profitability. And it, I don't know if there's even a good gauge. Uh, may, maybe you know of watching something that should be um, the uh, the most sensitive to corporate tax rates. We watch the relative strength of small caps. I think uh, Goldman or somebody came up with an index of companies that would benefit from uh, a corporate tax cut and others that would not. I don't know if that's been an indicator at all of what's what's been happening in Washington.
0: No, it hasn't at all. And so, so we actually do have an indicator for this. I put together. Yeah, I put together an index of companies that are high tax and low tax. So we just took like the 25% of companies that have the highest effective tax rate versus the 25% of companies, and this is in the S&P 500, so it's only large caps, but it should be pretty representative. Versus the 25% of companies with um, the highest tax rate. So it's high, or sorry, the lowest tax rate. So. You know, if if you're expecting, and it's just equal weighted, it's not market cap weighted. It's just very simple. You know, uh, about 120 stocks in each index, and we'll just see how they do. And you would expect if corporate tax rates are going to go down. You, it, it's almost impossible to imagine that there wouldn't be some sort of outperformance priced in to these lower tax companies, and of course there are confounding variables. Maybe lower tax companies are underperforming for reasons that have nothing to do with their tax rate. But it's but you know mm-hmm. on a relative basis, it's really hard to imagine that it would be one-sided outperformance of companies that have have um, low tax rates if tax rates are gonna drop. But that's what we've seen this year. This year it's been a death march for companies that have um, high tax rates versus companies that have low tax rates. Like. It's just the complete opposite of what you would expect if the market was rationally pricing in lower tax rates to come. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean what, we can't say, oh, 100% certainty, that means that tax rates, um, you know, aren't being considered at all by the market or that they won't pass or anything like that. But it's still, it is, I mean, it's just another example of of, it's really hard to trade some of these macro themes, um, you know, especially around the US government and you know the, the the stock market itself it's really challenging
1: I, I wonder if you know the conventional wisdom is that you know the uh, the retailers uh, I, I don't know if this is true you and, and tell, tell me that, you, that the retailers usually pay the highest taxes and a lot of the large cap uh, tech uh, uh, pay pay smaller so it's it, I would imagine that probably the macro trends the larger secular trends impacting Both of those industries is probably a tidal wave (laughs) compared to anything... Uh, that that would be embedded in, in the tax code.
0: That's definitely something that would contribute to it. I mean, there, there could be all kinds of other stuff going on too, like for instance, um, commodity exposure or exposure sure. to overseas versus domestic revenues or whatever, right? Like there's all sorts of stuff that could be going on. Um, but still, I mean, at the end of the day, even if it is confounding variables that are driving it, it's still remarkable to see how, how big of a disconnect it is, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Cool. So, Eddie, do you have anything new on the blog that you've added
1: recently? One of the big things I've done uh, with the blog is I've launched a, a weekly newsletter. I think I started that in 2010. And it, I really enjoy that. And um, I, I have a, uh, built up a nice uh, subscriber base. Um, and I enjoy writing that. I put a, a lot of effort into that. Uh, one of the downsides is it tends to cannibalize the regular blogging that I do, so just more. I put more energy into uh, into the newsletter. Again, I enjoy doing that, and I and I think it's uh, uh, so you know people who, who get it, it uh, enjoy enjoy it. I've I, I um, the uh, subscriber base has grown, but the only downside is it's not. I couldn't. I don't blog as deeply as I used to do um outside the newsletter which is indeed posted on the blog so that's been a big change and uh and i do that every week so it's it's fun and i do enjoy it
0: and again that newsletter is available if you go to crossingwallstreet.com and it's totally free it is totally free so you should all go sign up for that. Eddie's got really good thoughts on, on a lot of stuff, as, as you can probably tell from our conversation so far. Um, it would also be great to hear you talk a little bit about the buy list, which is your sort of list of stocks that you, um, that you pick to outperform the S&P every year. It's, what, 25 stocks? And it's relatively diversified for such a small portfolio. Um, could you talk a little bit about, about what goes into to picking those stocks, sort of your, your approach to that investment list?
1: Sure. Uh, basically, I guess I, I started uh, the uh, newsletter in July of 2005. And I, one of the things I wanted to do with the newsletter, uh, I'm sorry, the the, uh, the blog, is to show people that you can beat the market, that an individual can uh, beat uh, the stock market. So what I did was I'll say, I'll take a list of 20 stocks. Uh, this was later moved to 25. We started with 20 stocks. I said, these are 20 stocks. I'll choose them at the end of the year. I won't make any changes throughout the year. I won't touch it. It's a set and forget um, uh, uh, portfolio of 20 stocks. Uh, it's equally weighted. I, I sort of imagine it's a million dollar portfolio. It starts the year at $50,000 in each stock won't make any changes and it will, uh, it will beat the stock bar or, or at least uh, do well. And um, I, I, fortunately, that's had a, uh, a very good track record over the years. Now, when people say, well, uh, how do you choose it? Is it macro or anything? It, it is the opposite of that. Uh, it, it is the micro level. I look for companies I like, companies that I think are uh, uh, very, very you know strong performance, strong return on equity, uh, strong position in their market. I like good margins and low debt. Uh I like it, a company that has a comparative advantage, and a um, and, and going for a good price. So people always want to know, sort of, what's the screen, what's the what's the variable, and it really doesn't work that way. I have a uh, a group. I, I I call it on the blog my watch list. I try to pare that down. It's usually about a hundred names, and those are companies I liked. Companies that are the, you know, I can say these are good companies. These companies have uh, have delivered well over the years. And basically, I'll look at that. I, can't, I don't know I, I know something about all hundred, but I, I may not know them all very well. And if something drops down to what I think is a good bar, uh, bargain, particularly for a transient reason, you know there are reasons why stocks drops, but there's there's fixable and there's not fixable reasons. So I look for something that I think the the reason uh, it's cheap, it will easily pass. And that's how I get candidates for... Uh, for the next year's buy list. That is,
0: I mean, really not complicated, right? It's just basically understanding the business and understanding where it trades relative to the market and making a prediction about what happens going forward. I mean, compared to some of the mental gymnastics that go into, I mean, forget something like a quantitative, um, you know, beta, market neutral, beta index, whatever, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, or even, you know, like a like a basic DCF approach where you've got a a giant model that runs for, you know, ten page ten tabs on a spreadsheet. That's a really simp- simplistic approach. Um, so, you know, I, I think it it goes to show that not all the time is more complexity actually helpful, right? Like
1: yeah, keeping well, it simple, it'll, stupid it'll, is,
0: it'll... is is valuable. <laughs>
1: The, that, that's exactly right. And let me make a, this is, I think, a, an important point. It's a mistake that people make, and what I say is my, my uh, mantra is that letters, uh, numbers only lead to letters. So the the I, the essence, the the end result of research, a numerical analysis, and quantitative approach is not more numbers. The end result is wisdom. We're trying to gain knowledge for how the world works. So if you say you you do some research and you show that your stocks with PE ratios below this do this, stocks with PE ratio below that, and stocks with PE ratios above this do the worst, the end result is not the numbers. It's just say the end result is this value does work on these different measures. You're gaining the wisdom from that. This is something that people really mistake. You have to look at, like, is there an implicit reason why this works? So the numbers can only tell us a, a nice story about what's going on. So, so often numbers people think the end result is more numbers. So you get these overly complex uh, variables. So if you look, a company has you know strong uh, cash flow and you know, strong margins, That means that the product is good. The management is good. Why is the product good? Because it does something else that that its competitors can't. That's the end result of the research. It's not the numbers.
0: Right. It's also interesting too, looking at this list of companies. Um, you know, you're you're picking this to outperform the S and P as a portfolio. You're not trying to say that every pick will outperform the S and P. That's obviously ludicrous. And I think anybody that's been around finance for any substantial period of time will will agree with the idea that that everybody's wrong a huge percentage of the time. Right? Like Absolutely. it is impossible to be right. 80% of the time, it's, it's hard, It's really hard to be right. 55% of the time. Right. So, um, you know, of these, I'm just looking quickly at the list right now of these 25 stocks, nine are down on the year uh, mm-hmm. with the S&P up 17.8%. Um, or sorry, with the S&P up uh, a little bit better than that. Sorry. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it is here today, but the s and up high double digits here to date, um, high, high teens here to date. Um, and yet the portfolio as a whole is, is up over seventeen percent. So it's not a question of oh well, you know, I, every pick I'm going to make is going to outperform the market. Um, it's saying, you know, if I if I apply these techniques where businesses are going to perform better than they're expected to, and I think I can identify those, then you know, the balance of the odds is in my favor. So that's why I have a diversified portfolio.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And remember that one of the biggest. <laughs> Uh, factors of the market is that the market is inherently cyclical. There are things you're just you're, you're uh, out of fashion. I know like Ross Stores is a wonderful company, and you know they just got tossed out with a lot of retailers as being having a long term buy and hold. My my uh, my feeling is well they're wrong <laughs> and so I'll just I'll just wait them out where I know you know people who, who may be more short term and trader focused they're like well if it's going down therefore uh, the market is right uh, and and I'm gonna get out I'm less concerned with that I realize that you know things. Uh, I once I once read this on a Snapple cap. It said, you know, to everything uh, there's a season, and to every uh, purpose under heaven. That that was, uh, you know, th- things just come around. Things just, uh, you know, uh, come and go. And you under- understanding that with stocks. Uh, sometimes your stock is going to be uh, out of favor.
0: Yeah. Another thing you say on the site um, in your in your facts, you say, you know, if you uh, can't see your portfolio drop. By half, right? Which it would be a catastrophic drawdown by the standards of of the long term market, right? That doesn't happen very often. It um, it does happen, but it it's rare. Well, it's
1: happened tw- in twice in my in my professional life, right. As an investor, right?
0: So you know, it, it this is not a garden variety drawdown, but you should be operating under the assumption that that's what's going to happen. Exactly, right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so would you be able to talk a little bit about a couple of the stocks on the buy list? We'll pick maybe like one that's done really great. Um, one that's been in the headlines, actually, I think it would be good to talk about would be Cerner, uh, C-E-R-N. Um, so they're healthcare IT. And I mentioned earlier, you know, there's, they've uh, got a potential tie up with Amazon. Um, can you talk a little bit about them um, and about, about what the Amazon uh, relationship is? Uh, well, it,
1: uh, yes and no. Yes, because I, I don't think all the details have come out. Sure, yet. sure. Just, so just what we know. That, yeah. Yeah. So, so, but I mean, they are talking, and, and Amazon did say that. So that's a, a huge opportunity uh, for for the company. I don't know what uh, what Amazon's plan, plans are within the healthcare field. I, I think more specifically, this is uh, AWS. Uh, Cerner is a fantastic little company. You don't hear about it a lot, but they basically manage the IT for a, a lot of the uh, healthcare industry. This is, uh, you know, all all the billing that needs to be done. Also, a lot of fraud. That's a that's a big problem that they work on that. So, and it's also, you know, it's it's an important sector of the economy. And Cerner has established. A, a very nice uh, niche uh, across uh, across the uh, the industry. It's been a, a wonderful company. I believe last year the stock did not uh, do very well, and this year it's done very very well for us. And then a few days ago, I think this was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving it suddenly gaps up 5% during the day. And I guess one of the Amazon executives said that they're working on, quote, a big deal. And then this has been more established in some articles and some press releases, but we're still uh, waiting uh, on exactly what this is. But I imagine whatever it is, is very good news for Cerner.
0: So with Cerner, what about Cerner sort of fits into the the? the typical thing you would look for in a company and like to see from a company? Is there, is there something that you commonly look for in companies that Cerner tick the box with?
1: Yeah. I like to look for a, a company that does something that other people can't. It's sort of maybe not a technically a monopoly, but is sort of a, a monopoly that no other company can do that. I'll, I'll give you a, a good example is uh, Harley Davidson, which is not on the buy list, but it has been on the buy list in previous years. Now, here's sort of an interesting way to look at that. I would say that Harley Davidson is a monopoly. Now, According to the government, it's certainly not. Other people make motorcycles. But to Harley, they don't make just motorcycles. They make Harleys. It's a very distinctive product, and nobody else makes it. Now, you may say, well, that's just your opinion, but it's also the opinion of their customers. They understand what the Harley is. There's only one place to go for the Harley. So he, here's a way I, I think of it as, as sort of an explanation. Imagine if, George, you ran a lemonade stand. So kind of suspend a, a, a little bit of your imagination. You, you run this lemonade stand. And what you always want to do in business is find a way to make yourself more efficient, get that edge over everybody else. So let's say you come up with this brilliant idea that you want to, uh, you're gonna cut your costs. So, uh, you're gonna buy lemons, instead of buying them every day, you have this idea that you're gonna buy them once a week. And you find out that this cuts your uh, expenses by 30%. Now, just sort of follow me on this. Now, what does that mean from a business economic point of view? This is a huge jump, It's it's a game changer because what it says is, you can lower the cost of your product, of your lemonade, and you can uh, you can lower that at no cost to your margin. So you'll gain market share by lowering the price at at no cost whatsoever to your margin. Now, with this innovation, this is a good thing, but there's sort of a, uh, say a, a drawback to it. It's that. Anybody else can do that. People who are in the same economic universe, they can figure this out. your competitors of other lemonade stands. Now let's consider another uh, version of this. Let's say you come up with an invention and it's it's a uh, it squeezes it's a it's a squeezer, lemon juice squeezer, and you get out thirty percent more juice than you could before. Here, now let's look again at the economics of it the exact same thing you're 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 cutting your costs so you can lower the price of your uh of your product uh gain market share at absolutely no cost to your margins your margins can stay exactly the same even though you're lowering your price but with this there's a very big difference between their lemon juice squeezer and the previous one of just buying once a week and that is you can patent your invention and that locks everybody out it's a it's an innovation that can not be replicated by your competitors you're doing something just like Harley can do that is some something that nobody else can do you are absolutely the gatekeeper on this now one of the best ways to understand this is, or to see the effect is who has the ability to raise their price and who does not? Think of all the things you may buy you know, <laughs> for your life during the day. And you th- th- may think, God, these people, well, they could double the price of it. I hope they wouldn't, but I would still buy it. And there are companies that you know, that's what you want to own. That's the sort of business that, that you want to own that has sort of a, a built-in advantage in their marketplace. Now, always beware that these companies uh, these advantages are not permanent sometimes they can be fleeting but you want to look for for that that it does something that nobody else can do that that's that's what i look for in investments the trendy
0: popular way to refer to that is a moat and a i moat. I, th- exactly. I think a lot of people tend to reach and stretch for moats um you know like like x is a moat when x is not a moat at all um have you seen anything like that an argument around a company that oh well they've got this great moat but it's not actually a moat at all it 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 may be something that's beneficial or useful but it's not it's not a defensible way to provide something you know better to the market uh, in a defensible way
1: I, I, I particularly remember—I um, don't know if, you, if you're old enough to remember this—but during the dot-com bubble, everybody talked about the first-mover advantage and the QWERTY keyboard, and this is why you had to buy whatever you know uh, stock that had—you know, this is why A- AOL will, will never be unseated. Um, so, the, 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 what, what I would say is, yeah, you, you, you do see a, lo- a lot of phony modes, but I would also say, you know, the mode is always, uh, you know, changing. It do- doesn't mean it's, it's going to uh, last forever. Um, you know, look at the oil market. Uh, Saudi Arabia realizes that the future is not going to look like the past, and then you'll get, you know, a- an innovation. shale will come in. Completely uh, change the numbers on everything. The way uh, you know a- Amazon uh, changes a lot of things in retail. By the way, I like Ross sto- stores, which I think has a has a nice uh, moat because they're locked in with their um, uh, with their customers and understanding uh, what their customers go for. So it really is something not directly comparable with Amazon. Um, so yeah, I I you know. People are always trying to attack them, and I think what people don't understand is how fragile it can be. Got it. Um, so
0: one other stock it'd be nice to talk about from your from your buy list that, that hasn't done so well this year, um, Signature Bank, SBNY, uh, it's down 12% on the year in, in what's been a pretty decent year for financials generally, uh, despite being a, a very quality operation. Can you sort of talk about that at all and, and why things haven't played out exactly why, the way you expected there?
1: Yeah. Um, again, I'm I'm very happy with with the company, so I, I don't I don't have any, any problem with it, even though the stock is down. Uh, the, the, the they ran into you know it's a, sort of a New York based bank, and they ran into a big problem with uh, medallion loans. These are taxi medallions uh, in New York City and, and other cities, and you know they, these are pretty pricey things, and so they were uh, taking uh, loans on this, and obviously that industry has gone under a, a great disruption and the uh, price for these medallions uh, have plunged and as a result uh, it's it's almost like the um, uh, uh, the, the, the financial crisis <laughs> in, in miniature and so signature uh, held on to a lot of these really bad loans um, and you know they've been working to sort of uh, get those off the books and do what they can with that and so I think that's had a very negative impact on the stock but also i think that is a good example if you were to ask people like oh signature yeah the medallion loan stay away from that that really is not true (laughs) it's a the 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 mind loves to be a um a toggle when you know reality is really a dimmer switch and so a lot of times, you know the the most difficult to argument to make publicly is an argument of degree. so the 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 reality is, yeah, the, these medallion loans were a problem, but that's in you know overall, a a modest portion of a very well- run bank. So uh, you know that 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 easy statement that they're being hurt by medallion loans while while is true, uh, I don't think impacts the larger uh, aspect of of uh of what of what makes signature a good investment also I remember they bounced up very dramatically after the election i think they gained like 23 percent in four days so i think we've seen some deflation of out of that from the uh, you know as the as the trump trade has deflated but actually i'm, I'm pretty optimistic uh for signature for, for, signature for 2018.
0: That's a really good example, too, of not no investor is capable of understanding every single risk and managing every single risk out there like the the known unknowns are enormous the unknown unknowns are way bigger right so you're mm-hmm. never going to be able to pick a portfolio of 25 stocks consistently that beat the s p 500 you're never going to be able to do it you may be able to be pick a portfolio that in aggregate beats the s p 500 and that's you know that's doable as as you show uh but Doing it with every single stock is just not going to happen and some aren't going to work out the way that you hope they would for any number of reasons that have nothing to do with, you know, the core operating business or have nothing to do with your analysis.
1: I mean, you know, companies are dynamic enterprises. They have thousands of of, of employees. I mean, AIG, this was a good insurance company as far as what they did for a living. Insurance, they're a good company. But just because they had sort of a a hedge fund on the side, that ruined everything. How are you actually going to know that? How can can you you see that ahead of time? So yeah, you're exactly right. A business is inherently a very, very dynamic enterprise.
0: So you have turned the buy list into an ETF and it's got a relatively innovative structure um, that that effectively doesn't pay as high a fee if the the list doesn't do the job it's supposed to do. Can you talk a little bit about um, the process of setting that ETF up and how it works and how things are going there?
1: Sure, sure. Well, as I said, you know, I never, I never monetized the blog or the buy list or or the newsletter or anything like that. And I just had over the years more and more people say, yeah, I love the buy list. I think it's great. Um, you know, do, do you have an RIA? Say, like, no, I don't. Is there any way? Do you have a hedge fund? No, I don't. Is there any way I could do this? And. I just uh, w- was able to uh, hook up with Advisor Shares. They're actually a locally based, and Noah Hammond is the CEO. And a, uh, I, you know, he sort of we, we had some talks for a while. I got to know him and and Advisor Shares and that organization, and I was I was very impressed by them. And we said maybe there's a product here if we could turn the buy list into a uh, an, into an ETF, an actively managed ETF. And as an extension of that, that we said this is something that has a nice track record of, of beating the market, um, sort of let's stand by this. And this was actually Noah, Noah's idea. I can't take uh, credit for it. But he said, let's implement a, uh, a fulcrum fee. Uh, so that basically means if, uh, if I beat uh, the S&P 500, that's my benchmark, um, I get a little bonus. And if we fall short of it, then shareholders get a, a savings on their fee, so it, it it is dependent on how well I do, and I believe I'm almost certain that that this was the very first ETF with a fulcrum fee. I don't know if there are any others since then, but I believe. Uh, we were number one uh, to do that. And is that
0: something that a lot of people that uh, have looked at the ETF have, have found attractive? Do you specifically, I mean, obviously, there are other reasons to be interested in it. But um, is that specific feature something that's garnered a lot of interest?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think people like the idea that we stand behind this, that, you know, that, that that's and there's so much I think of with within the finance world that you know, there's a feeling that, you know, who's really behind this? Are are they on the same side that you are? And so I think people appreciate that. Yeah. It's also compared to some
0: of the proliferation of ETFs um, that are out there. It's very straightforward. I mean, it is an actively managed ETF and it does have that Fulcrum free. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's 25 stocks and it just, it doesn't have any turnover. It doesn't have any, you know, you know crazy quantitative index behind it or some highly esoteric set of assets that it holds it's just 25 stocks that's what it is <laughs>
1: i mean that, that no that's like i mean i feel like we're we're old fashioned stock pickers that's what we're about not nothing fancy no 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 crazy options or margin or anything like that it's just you know we're we're we're, we're picking stocks we you know we we think we think these are 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 going to do well. We also, as you you certainly know, there's a lot of talk about behavioral biases. So we're we're trying to minimize that by having a a focused port, portfolio, uh, b low turnover. So we swap in uh, five, swap in five, swap out five uh, each year. So that turnover is 20%, which by the way is actually not terribly far from the S&P 500 itself. And then we, we all, you know, we, there's no no buying or selling throughout the year makes my job very easy. And then we do we do all the buying once a year at the at the very end of the year. Uh, keeps it keeps it. Uh, we go as much in cash as we are operationally possible. I think it's like having a can you have a body fat less than five percent? I don't know if it's actually. Possible to do that, but we 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 try to uh, uh, maximize that. We try to make the ETF. We're, we're careful to say it is not an exact replica of the buy list, but we 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 do our best to make the uh, the buy, you know, what you see on the buy list as best as we operationally can have that reflected in the ETF. That's sort of our rule. On, uh, on, on how we go about it take take that buy list, you know we do it equally weighted all, all 25 at the beginning of the year and that's that's it sort of what what you see is what you get. what is the sort of break even in terms of an AUM for an ETF
0: to be worth keeping open? You know, you don't need a billion dollars worth of of assets in an ETF to make it a, a viable business proposition. it's It's much lower than that. Can you talk a little bit about, about that um, side of things?
1: Yeah, now, now I want to make it clear. I would take a billion dollars if if you know that's what people want to do. I'm more than I don't interested. think
0: anyone would turn that down.
1: <laughs> so and we we would be profitable at that. Uh, basically, uh, you know we're new we're new to this game. I would say there's two two things I would say once you get to about uh, twenty million dollars, you have sort of a real thing that is moving uh, and, and it's not, not just sort of like the airplane that's sort of bumping up and down the runway, you're actually in flight. And I would say up to $50 million, it, you have sort of a worthwhile, profitable uh, investment vehicle. Obviously, a lot of that changes on your, your um, uh, fees, uh, that that you're charging the the more and less. But I would say that's as a as a general, I'm sort of talking at the at the lowest level. So within the universe of uh, Vanguard and others, you know fifty million dollars is, is a micro spec in, in their universe
0: yeah when you're talking about year-to-date etf flows of i think 400 billion was a number i saw last week obviously uh we're talking about a kind of a different thing from from some of the larger providers but uh it's still interesting to see to um the etf space as a place for you know relatively small shops to get involved and and start doing stuff um you know that's accessible to anybody with a brokerage account, you know. And I, not that it'll people, always work out well, but y- you know, you like to see some innovation at the very least.
1: Well, I think people really like sort of dig the idea of what we're doing—that we have a, uh, you know, I, okay, you talk talk about some, you know, Vanguard or Fidelity fund. They don't have a blog that's sort of focused on those stocks. They don't have a, a, a maybe there is. I'm not aware of one. Or, and 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 a newsletter which talks about the stocks on, on the buy list and a and a Twitter feed where I, I talk I, I talk all of that that. So it's sort of like uh, I I let you into the the cockpit of what's going on. Now w- one of the things about having you know the actively managed ETFs for. In the old days, if you bought, you know, Fidelity and Magellan, they'd want to keep their holdings uh, secret. They don't want to have the secret sauce get out there. And certainly, we know how, how quantitative funds. That's a, a a whole nother level of secrecy. Me, I don't care at all. You could uh, absolute glass door. People say, you know, aren't you worried about people, you know, uh, replicating it? I don't see that as hurting me if they if they you know want to do it. It's it's much easier just to uh, just to buy CWS. Uh, by the way, if I if I mention it, I got I've never had to uh, choose a ticker symbol before. But that's something I I did was a new experience. So the the blog is crossing Wall Street, and I was able to get the ticker symbol CWS was uh, was free. So I was uh, I was over the moon about that. So I thought that was that was cool, uh, getting that ticker symbol.
0: Awesome. We always like to close out with uh, trading rich, trading cheap. So uh, I'm just gonna throw some- You're gonna ask Bitcoin, aren't you? Uh, I'm gonna ask
1: football, I, would, I know what you're gonna ask. You could probably throw in some Canadian things as well. Uh, so, okay, shoot, shoot, go ahead. I go was, ahead. I'll throw out the
0: first one as a football question and we'll, we'll see <laughs> how close of a DC sports fan you are. Okay. Uh, one of my former teammates is a wide receiver for the uh, Washington Redskins, Jamison Crowder. Is Jamison Crowder trading rich or trading cheap? And really, this is a question about how closely you follow football in the D.C. area.
1: <laughs> I would say, I would say um, he, 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 he's trading poor in that I, I think there, there's a, and I mean that, that, that's what I mean by good. I think, uh, I think he's a, uh, a top-notch uh, athlete, and I hope he's on the Redskins for many years to come. I, I would join you in that hope.
0: Um, we, we've talked a lot about, uh, or we didn't talk a lot about, it, but we talked a bit about geopolitics and, and sort of how... Um, Politics are affecting the market. Do you think, uh, as someone that that reads a lot of history and that is you know sort of very engaged in that side of things, uh, do you think that uh, American soft power is trading rich or trading cheap as we stand right now? Do you think um, there's there's further to fall, or that this is a blip? That the sort of um, you know fewer state diplomats, um, you know, sort of some of the foreign policy decisions that have been made, uh, that doesn't really matter, and things are going to be fine.
1: Uh, I would say it's trading rich. I think a lot a lot of these things about you know American soft power. I think there are larger trends driving things across the world, where the idea is that you know sort of uh, 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 America and the UN and and uh, some important axes. Presiding over the world, I think a lot of that world has broken down. and we're seeing return, resurgence of nationalism literally on, on every continent, maybe except for Antarctica. Um, and I think those trends are those are on the upstr- upswing and the American led, you know, uh, cold War um, structure, is
0: slipping and slipping each year. Do you think that's necessarily a bad thing? Or do you think it's a thing that that could be bad, could be good, depending on how things play out? Ned, I I think it's a bad thing. All right, that's uh, that's a little unfortunate, but <laughs> take them as we come. Um, trading rich or trading cheap, um, the Washington D.C. Uh, lifestyle, the, the 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 town of D.C., and we're gonna we're not talking about the swamp and politics. We're talking about the living in D.C.
1: <laughs> well, that's trading very very rich. If you look at the real estate prices, they always say that you know D.C. is. Uh, um, recession-proof because if things go south, then you have an expansion of government. But it, it really is that. You know, D.C. is a uh, a city where it used to be just sort of your average, you know, mom and dad could raise a family, uh, you know, in in some you know, okay schools. And I see that's just becoming uh, prohibitive in a, in a lot of parts, and you really see the uh, growth of the very fringe suburbs. So it's sadly the TC lifestyle is very, very rich. Uh, last one. Um, do you think that uh,
0: the individual investor is trading rich or trading cheap? If everybody's just using Betterment to do passive allocations, are people gonna be less engaged in the market? Are we gonna see future generations be as engaged in, in stocks for better or for worse? Some, some people might argue that's actually this might actually be a good thing. Um, than their than their um, progenitors
1: well let me say like the tools are there will, will, will they use them as much I don't know I would say probably not but let me say this is important this is a great time to be an investor the, the way the sort of the 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 uh, priesthood of the temple has been, Absolutely smack the cult of the analyst and the extremely high fees and the the uh, the the uh, you know transparency. You just didn't know what was going on. I mean, with with ETFs, with low brokerage fees, with the growth of uh, 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 Twitter, uh, blogs like Bespoke, people have access to so much more information, and and it uh, democratizes. Uh, Investing to such a degree, four hundred one ks, those aren't aren't that old, uh, and and all these neat things that you can do. Now there, there with that, there there's a problem that there's you. Know, what I like to say is there's an overflow of of information, but I think there's an underflow of news. Uh, and and then it gets back to the question: Will people uh, take this up? Or are, will they uh, be you know, content to be a uh, 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 passive? I believe, and I'm, I'm standing behind this with, with my own business, with my own, own, e, own ETF that says, yeah, there will always be a group of people who just dig stock picking. And, and let's just face it, stock picking is a lot of fun. I don't think there's any other place where you can make judgments and have them tested every single day, when the opening bell starts at 9.30 a.m. I
0: wouldn't disagree with that. And uh, that will close out our conversation with Eddie Alfenbein. Eddie, thanks so much for joining us. This is a lot of fun. Uh, Always fun to sort of go through an interview and then suddenly it's like, oh, wow, we've just been talking for an hour and and that just blew by. So uh, really good time talking to you. And thanks very much for coming on Bespokecast. Thanks for having me. Joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.